All right, if we can find our seats, we'll get started this morning. Have you ever heard the saying, there's no bad questions? That's not true. Uh, I know of a bad, I was trying to think of a bad question, and uh, this one popped in my mind, and obviously I'm still a little upset about this one. I remember when I took my driver's training test, the written part of it, uh, they had this question on the test. I want you to think about it when I, when I read this. Uh, when parking on a hill, should you, A, turn your steering wheel away from the curb, or B, toward the street? <laughs> I'm not kidding you, that was on my, I, I, they give it back to you, so I'm like, did I misread it? I looked over it. Uh, see, it's the only question I got wrong on the driver. There is such things as bad questions, and if you're a parent of a teenager, you probably know um, this. Uh, when, a, when a teenager asks you a question that is actually not a question, but an accusation, like, how could you do this to me? Or, why do you never, or why do we never get to? Um, today we're actually going to look at a bad question. A dumb question by the religious leaders of Jesus' age. And I want to be clear before we get going that... Uh, um, the question itself is actually not dumb, as we'll see in a second here, but, but I want to make clear that God wants us to ask questions. And if you look at the Psalms especially, you see that God wants us to be honest with Him. And He wants us to ask hard questions and seek out the answers. And honestly, I feel like half my job is just getting to the Scripture and looking at it and going, what's this mean? What's going on here? What's God doing here? Just asking questions. Um, he wants us to ask hard questions, but just like the teenager, the intentions of your heart matters. Why you ask the question, or how you ask the question. This is why the question we're going over today is done, because it was fueled, it was, it was pushed by evil intentions. So there's three points I want to go over in our sermon today. It's a, it's a dumb question that leads to a revealing question. That leads to a dishonest answer. A dumb question that leads to a revealing question that leads to a dishonest answer. I was kind of bummed I couldn't find a word that started with a D for that middle point. Revealing is just such a perfect word, so we're going to go DRD, I guess, for our points today. Um, so let's start with a, a, a dumb question, right? Look at uh, Luke 20, verse 1 for me. As you guys are turning there, let me just read the first part of this verse. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching in the temple, the people in the temple, and preaching the gospel, and, and before we even get started, can I just stop and reflect on that for a second? Jesus is in the temple, teaching and preaching. The, the presence of God is back in the temple, Jesus himself, teaching the people, and preaching the gospel. With that thought, I want you to just to think about how ironic verse 2 is, right? The glory of God is back in the temple, God himself, right? The second part of verse 1 says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, these are the religious leaders, came up, and in the Greek, there's a sense of urgency, so they came up to Jesus with this urgent uh, urgency, and verse 2 says this, and they said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Right. They asked 
who gave you this authority? It's ironic because they're asking God, who gave you this authority? On one level, I, I get why they asked this. I mean, Jesus at this point was claiming some crazy authority. I want you to think of what's going on here. This is probably Tuesday, meaning Sunday was the triumphal entry that Brent preached on a few Sundays ago, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, on a cult which kings did during times of peace. Right? Luke 19.36 tells us that the crowds spread their cloaks, their, their clothes on the road, their jackets on the road, and what's that symbol? Well, symbolize, well, when citizens spread their cloaks on the road for a king, in essence, they were saying, we place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over us if necessary. Right? It was a sign of complete submission to the authority of the king. And the crowds were rejoicing greatly, saying in verse uh, 30, 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on or peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew and Mark actually add to tell us that they were shouting, Son of David, which means king or lord or even Messiah, and, and shouting Hosanna, which which has a sense of save us now. Praise your name, save us. You are our Lord and Savior, you are the Messiah. The crowds were shouting, when what did Jesus do? He just accepted their praise and honor. No wonder the, the Pharisees were mad. Who does this man think he is? Who does this man think he is? Luke 19.39 tells us, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Right? How dare you let them call you Messiah and Savior? But Jesus doesn't back down. Actually, in verse 40, he answers, I tell you, if these people, right, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I mean, think of that claim. Wow. And this is just Sunday. Right? Monday comes along, and Jesus does something unthinkable. And I want to kind of paint the picture uh, of what's going on, because this is a familiar passage to us, but... But Jesus at this point is proven to have miraculous powers, right? This is the end of his ministry, right? He's being called the Messiah, right? And the Jews thought the Messiah would come with these miraculous powers and be this warrior-type Messiah that would overthrow the Romans, would get an army going and overthrow the Romans, right? And this is Passover week, meaning it's a travel, traveling holiday. All the Jews from all the nations have come to Jerusalem. So, so the, the Jerusalem has just full of people, over two million people, some people think. Right? If there was ever a time to get an army going with the Messiah and attack the Romans, it was during Passover week. Right? And the people were ready, and they thought Jesus was that perfect leader. But Jesus doesn't attack the Romans. Instead, the next day, Mark eleven fifteen says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers. He doesn't attack the Romans. He goes straight to the heart of Jerusalem and attacks the temple. Right? Really, specifically, he attacks the religious leaders and their corrupt religious system. 
Right? One commentator said this, The cleansing of the temple reveals that the Son of Man had divine authority on earth. He claimed authority over, or to forgive sins in Mark 2. He demonstrated this by healing. He claimed authority over Satan's realm of, um, of the demonic in Mark 3. He demonstrated this by casting out demons. He claimed authority over life and death in, in, in John 11. And he demonstrated this by raising the dead. Here by this action, Jesus claimed authority to purify the temple and to pronounce judgment on it. Right? Jesus claimed crazy authority. Right? And he used it to attack the religious leaders and the religious system within Jerusalem. And this is just Monday. By the time Tuesday comes around, there's obviously this growing hostility towards Jesus. Especially by the religious elite. And this hostility leads to a really dumb question. Chapter 20, verse 2, and, and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? It's not the first time this question has been asked. If you would, turn, turn your scriptures to Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 31. This question has been asked throughout all of Jesus' ministry. But in Luke, it starts in Luke 4, chapter 31. I mean, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And it says this, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they, being the crowd at Capernaum in the synagogue, were astonished by his teaching, for he possessed authority. Right? His words possessed authority. People were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Because he taught with authority. And they're asking questions. Where did this man get this authority? Right? Who gave this man this authority? How could he claim such authority? Right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus claimed ultimate authority. Jesus spoke as if he had complete authority. He spoke as if his words were equal to Scripture. And people were amazed. Right? In Matthew 538 Jesus says you have heard it said that or you have heard that it, it was said an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth that's quoting scripture an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth but I say to you think about that wow scripture says this but I say to you and we learn he's not contradicting scripture he's clarifying it but he's putting his words at equal parallel to scripture and not just any scripture, not just any particular phrase, but this one, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is repeated three times in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24 says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. Leviticus 24, 20 says, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Deuteronomy 19, 21 says, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Jesus says, I know what this scripture says, but I tell you. According to, according to Jesus, his words held the same authority as Scripture. And people were amazed and astonished at this. They were amazed and astonished at his teaching. Matthew 
728 says this, and, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, where he was teaching them as, as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The religious leaders didn't teach this way. No one teaches this way. Right? One commentator said this, the Jewish teachers whom the people were used to hearing usually quoted from well-known rabbis or gave their, the opinions of predecessors in order to give their words more authority. In other words, they quoted other people to, to, to give their words more authority. And it's exactly what we do today. If you wrote an essay and you didn't quote anyone, right, you wouldn't get a good grade. You have to quote people. You have to quote authorities to back up your claim. Or if you read a book or an article that, that says something that you're not sure of, you're going to check their authorities, who they've quoted. Even in the sermon, I've already quoted a theologian to give weight to, to the argument or the interpretation that, I, that I'm claiming. Right? But Jesus just spoke. Matthew twenty two thirty three says, And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. Mark 1, 22 says, And they were astonished at his teachings, for he taught, as, or they, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark 1, 27 says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Mark 10, 24 says, And the disciples were amazed at his words. Mark eleven eighteen 18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the, crowds, uh, all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. John 7, 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Right? And Jesus had no degrees. He had no PhD, he had no master's degree. He was a carpenter's son. How can he speak with such authority? And who gave him this authority? People were amazed. And they wanted to know where Jesus got his authority in Luke 4. Can he be teaching this way? Listen, if you were to read Luke for the first time, the book of Luke for the first time, and, and you didn't have any prior biblical knowledge, which is almost no, none of us, even if you're a guest this morning, you grew up in a culture that you know the Bible somewhat, right? But most of us that grew up in the church know the Bible well. But if you were to read Luke for the very first time, which many people did after the book circulated, when you got to, to Luke 4, 30, 32, asking where did Jesus get his authority would have been a good question. It would have been a good question, because at this point, in the book of Luke, Jesus hadn't performed any miracles. Right? At this point, Luke is really focused on, on the humanity of Jesus, not his divinity. Right? I mean, the birth of Jesus, even, is a miraculous birth, but Luke, as a physician, really emphasizes the humanity part of his birth. It was a human birth. It was a real birth. Right? Jesus' childhood... We read more about Jesus' childhood in Luke than anywhere else. Luke 2, 27 says this, And he, being, being Simon, came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, again Simon, 
took him up in his arms. Just think about that for a second. The God of the universe, the being that spoke everything into existence as a baby or a child in a man's arms. A human child. He was a son to human parents. Luke 2, 51, and, and he went down with them, his parents. He went with his parents. And he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. You think about that. Right? You know, one of the hardest things to do as a pastor and as a man, I just want to say this, is, is to actually tell women, especially women that are, that are older than me, women that I look to as like mother figures, that they're supposed to be submissive. That's just a really hard thing to say. But scripture teaches that, right? Jesus modeled it. The creator of the universe who had all authority when he was a child was an example of how to be submissive. That's amazing. He was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, just like a human, just like a boy. And in favor with God and man. Right? Even the temptations as he's battling Satan. His humanity was tempted. Not his divinity. Right? Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was tired. So if Jesus was human. Right? Which Luke has made very clear up to this point. Did Jesus have the authority to teach this way? Did he have the authority to make his words on par with God's words? I mean, that's a huge claim. Right? It'd be normal and healthy to question anyone that was doing that. If Jesus was human, how do we know we can trust his shocking claims? Well, Luke shows us. Just keep open in chapter 4 and 5. And I, and I want to go through chapter 4 and 5 just kind of quickly. Because Jesus backs up his claim of authority in chapters 4 and 5. The, the question that sets this up is, by what authority? Look at chapter, Luke chapter 4, verse 35. He rebukes a demon, and the demon listens to him. Proving that he had authority over the supernatural realm. It says in Luke 4, 36, the people were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. People were just like, who is this guy? He's claiming authority, but then the demons are listening to him. Right? He's proven his, proving his authority. In Luke 4, 39, he rebukes a fever. Yeah, that's one thing to rebuke a demon who can listen. He rebukes a fever, and the fever listens, proving he has authority over sickness. In Luke 4.40, he heals everyone. Right? It says, all those who were sick with various diseases, meaning everyone in the area heard that there was this man healing, and they came to him, and he healed them all. In Luke 4.41, he rebukes many demons, right? and the demons obey. In Luke 5, 12 through 16, he, he cleanses a leopard. 
In Luke 5, 17 through 26, he heals a paralyzed man. And I want you to look what he says when he heals him. Because you have to ask, why is Jesus doing all these miracles? Look what he says in Luke 5, 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Right? I am doing this so you know that I have authority. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up, or picked up what he had lying on, and went home glorifying God. Listen, it is clear in Scripture that only God had the authority to forgive sins. Only God had the authority to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus not only claimed an amazing amount of authority, he backed it up, he proved it by healing a paralyzed man. So, questioning Jesus' authority in Luke 4.30 would have been very reasonable. Because even though uh, there was evidence that Jesus was the Christ before Luke 4, he hadn't proven anything yet. He hadn't done a miracle. But by the time we get to chapter 20, Jesus had proven over and over and over and over again that he had the authority of God. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus fed 5,000 a couple of fish and some bread. And honestly, that's 5,000 men. It's probably more like 20,000. Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed thousands and thousands. He healed whole cities. He cleansed lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave words to the mute. Jesus just spoke and raised people from the dead. Calm storms. Cast out thousands of demons. And healed many. Right? Jesus had proven time and time again that he had authority over the natural world, over the supernatural world, over sickness and death, over even life and death itself. Jesus not only claimed divine authority, he backed up his claims. Ridiculous miracles. God made it clear that Jesus had divine authority. It was plain. It was obvious. Therefore, to question Jesus' authority by Luke 20 was dumb. It was obvious at this point. It was obvious. So the question really is, why would they question Jesus' authority? It was so obvious. Why would they question Jesus' authority? Simply because they hated him. They hated him. Turn to Luke 19, verse 47. Turn back to Luke chapter 19. It says this in verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They wanted him dead because they were jealous because Jesus not only was claiming authority over Jerusalem and over the temple Jesus was claiming authority over the lives of the religious leaders themselves 
He was claiming authority over everything and everyone, and they hated him for it. How dare you tell me what to do? So it led to a dumb question, which leads to a revealing question. I mean, one of the things that, that amazes me is, I love apologetics, but just studying scripture, like, Scripture itself is, is an apologetic. Like, it's amazing to me that, that Jesus would respond in such a perfect way. He would ask such a simple question that was perfect in response to the question that was asked by the religious leaders. This is what it says in verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Let me start by saying, Jesus wasn't trying to avoid the question by asking another question, right? He has clearly claimed authority at this point. He's made that clear, right? In his ministry, this is the end of his ministry. He's backed up those claims with miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, right? The truth was obvious. Jesus just refused to give any more light to those who refused to accept the light they already had. He asked this question because the answer would do one of two things. First, if they answered honestly in response to the truth that they already possessed, then their answer, the answer to the question Jesus asked them, would answer their original question. In other words, if they answered Jesus' question, that would answer their question. Right? They answered honestly. It's a very common way that rabbis debated, and I'm sure still debate. The answer to this question will answer that question. But if they answer dishonestly, the true intentions of their hearts would be revealed to everyone. It's a revealing question. It's a perfect question. It's a perfect question. Here's the question. Verse 4 is short. It's small. It's easy. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? That's it. Right, two options. John's ministry, is it from God? Right? A prophet from God, was he from God? Or was he a man? Was he just crazy? Was he a crazy man in the desert that liked to eat bugs? That's your options. Verse 5 says, and they, they discuss it among one another. Right? So here's these religious leaders, these learned men. Right? Get this simple question that everyone knew the answer to. And they come together and they huddle up. I just picture them kind of huddling and looking over like a football player or something. And they're drawing something and figuring this out. Like, what do, how do we answer this? Right? How do we answer this? And so they discussed it uh, with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? Right? If we say God or John's ministry was from God, he's going to say, why weren't you baptized by him? I mean, huge amounts, vast amounts of people went to John to get baptized out in, in the Jordan, right? By the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. People would come, confess their sins, and repent from their sins, turn from their sins, turn to God, and, and, and be baptized as a symbol of that happening. And there was no way, there was no way the religious leaders were going to humble themselves, confess their sins, and repent. So they didn't get baptized. 
Like Luke 7, 20, 29 makes this clear. When all the, the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious leaders, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Right? They denied John's baptism. They said, that's not from God. It was a public declaration that John was not a, a prophet. So the back track on that, to, to go back on that declaration now would look really foolish. Especially, think about this. If you say John was a prophet, he was from God. Well, what did John call the religious leaders? A brood of vipers. You'd be confirming his words. <laughs> to call John a prophet would be admitting that they are sinners and rebelling against God. And they weren't going to do that. But worse than all of that, Worse than all of that, to say that John was a prophet would confirm Jesus' ministry. This is what John claimed about Jesus in John 1.29. He says this, Look, the Lamb of God, who comes and takes away the sins of the world, this is the one um, I meant when I said, A man whom comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing, the reason for my ministry with water, was that he might be revealed to Israel. That everyone would know who he is. And John's whole ministry pointed to Jesus. He was the forerunner. Therefore, to admit that John's ministry was, was from heaven would confirm that Jesus' authority came from God would answer the first question. Where did you get this authority? So they discussed it. They're in the huddle. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why don't you believe him? We can't do that. So verse 6, but if we say from man, right, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. I mean, think about that. Right? I mean, just think. It was so obvious that John was a prophet for whatever reason. We, we have a little bit of John's ministry. But everyone knew for whatever reason. I'm guessing some, some maybe miracle uh, that confirmed his ministry. I don't know. But everyone knew he was a prophet. So much so, it was so obvious that the religious leaders were afraid of the crowd. Right? If they said he was just a crazy man. Even King Herod was afraid of the people when it came to John. Right? Matthew 14, 5 says this, And though he, being King Herod, wanted to put him, which is John the Baptist, to death, he feared the people because they held him as a prophet. It was that obvious he was a prophet. They were ready to rebel against the king of their, their area because how dare you go against John. But the religious leaders didn't want to admit the obvious. So they were caught in the horns of the dilemma. If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? We'll look sinful and foolish. But if we say from man, that he's just this crazy guy that was out in the desert, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Therefore, we'll be physically harmed. 
If we say from heaven, we'll look foolish and be dishonored. If we say from, from man, we'll be physically harmed. Foolish, dishonored, physically harmed. What are they not interested in at all? The truth. The truth. There is no conviction. They're not interested in the truth. There's absolutely no conviction. Even if they, they thought he was a crazy man, stand on that truth. I think Jesus would have talked with them. I think he would have sat there and said, let's talk about it. Let's reason this out. But they're not interested in the truth at all. Which leads to my third point, a dishonest answer. A dishonest answer. Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Said to Jesus, we don't know. Jesus asked, Why, what, what authority, or where did John's ministry come from? From heaven or from man? They said, we don't know. We don't know. You know what? That's a lie. <laughs> it's a flat out lie. They knew. At this point, it was so obvious. It was so obvious that John was a prophet, the people were ready to stone people if they said otherwise. Right? It was so obvious that Jesus had divine authority. He had proven it time and time, over and over and over again, right there in front of the religious leaders. They knew the truth, but they took that truth and took all of their intellect and suppressed it. They were living out Romans 1. It's one of the best examples I see in Scripture of depravity of man. In our depraved state, in our, in our sinful state, in our rebellious state, before we are saved, we take truth and we suppress it. Right? This is what Romans 1.18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? That word suppress in Greek is like taking a basketball. You've probably heard me say this before. I know the high schoolers have and pushing it underwater, what's that basketball want to do? Come up, right? And if it slips, it's going to hit you in the face. Right? That's what it's like. The truth is so obvious that you have to use all your intellect to push it down, and, and it slips and hits you in the face. Right? I've heard someone say it's like that whack-a-mole game. Right? You get going, you think you're doing pretty good, and suddenly it gets a little bit faster, and, and you can't get all the moles down, right? You're like laying on it with all your hands and feet and uh, every time you do it, something else pops up. But that's like the truth. It's so plain that no matter how hard you try to push it down, it keeps popping up. Jesus, the, it says, abide their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has made it plain and obvious. Jesus' authority was plain. It was obvious. Everyone knew. And the religious leaders took this plain, obvious truth and suppressed it. Not because the truth wasn't plain and obvious, but because they hated it. They hated the truth. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Right? And if anyone claimed to be wise, it was the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These men thought they knew everything. 
but because they didn't like the truth that was so obvious, they suppressed it. And in doing so, they became fools by saying, we don't know. We don't know. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from earth? Or was it from heaven or from man? Where he's like, everyone knew this answer. The uneducated people were like, well, of course it's from heaven. Right? Did you not see Jesus' miracles? Right? Of course he had divine authority. The religious leaders, we don't know. Because they hated the answers, therefore they became fools. We don't know. Listen, our culture is doing the same exact thing. We live in a postmodern, relativistic age. Right, where truth is relative to the individual. The slogan of our day is, you can't know anything for sure. Right? What should you say if anyone tells you that? You know that? You know that for sure? Right? It's a self-refuting statement, meaning if it's false, it's false. Right? Any statement that's false is false. But if it's true, it's false. You can't know anything. If that's true, you can't know that. It's false. It's nonsense, and yet it's the leading philosophy of our day. Why? Why do people embrace nonsense? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, according to Proverbs 1.7. People would rather embrace nonsense than recognize and submit to God's authority. They'd rather say we can't know anything at all. Does that sound familiar? Look at Luke 20, verse 7. So they, the religious leaders, answered that they don't know. We don't know. We can't know. Truth is obvious. They didn't like it, so they just embraced foolishness. Romans 1, says this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. The religious leaders weren't ready to give up their idols. Their idol of, of being in charge, being an authority, being honored. They weren't ready to give that up. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 24 in Romans 1. In the lust of their hearts and into impurity the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Because they continued to exchange the truth about God for a lie. I mean, over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus, Jesus confirmed his authority by miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle right in front of the religious leaders, and they exchanged that truth for a lie and said, he does it by the power of Satan. Come on. So God gave them up to their lust of their heart. And I think that's why Jesus says in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You won't give me an honest answer? I'm not even going to talk to you. I'm not answering yours. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. D.A. Carson, a, th a theologian, said this, far from avoiding the religious leader's question, Jesus answered it 
uh, or Jesus answers it so that the honest seeker of truth, unswayed by public opinion, will not fail to see who he is, while those interested only in catching him in a trap were blocked by a hurdle that their own shallow pragmatism forbids them to cross. If they couldn't discern Jesus' authority, it was because of their unbelief because their unbelief had blinded their minds to God's revelation. And God has revealed to them Jesus' authority time and time again. This last week, we did a, a week-long class, two hours a day for, for the whole week, five, five days, two hours a day. And I, I thought about this while I was doing my sermon. That means 10 hours this week of, of lecture. My voice was hurting. I can't believe these 20 students made it through the whole week, but they did. Right. Ten hours worth of lectures on apologetics, right. the defense of the faith. And the claim I made all week was that uh, all, all worldviews, all other worldviews besides the biblical worldview, destroy the possibility of proof and knowledge. Destroy the possibility of proof and knowledge. Right. It took me ten hours to, to make that point, so I'm not going to try to make it right now. Some of you guys are happy. All of you guys are happy. Um, it's called a presuppositional argument. We use Pastor Andy's book. A lot of you guys have taken Pastor Andy's apologetics class before or have read his book. But, but the, the claim that we make in that book in presuppositional apologetics is that the proof of God is that without God you can't prove anything at all. I believe that's a biblical argument, by the way. That's Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you don't have the fear of the Lord, if you don't have God... Knowledge is impossible. You know how I know that's true? Because our culture is there. We've given up on it. We said, your knowledge is your knowledge, my knowledge is my knowledge. We can't know anything for sure, so let's give up trying. But every time I do this apologetic week, I feel like the class gets to this point where it, it's just, the truth is just so obvious. Like me just being right there with them. And the truth is so obvious that we just wonder, why can't people see this? The Bible gives us an answer. They are blinded to the truth. They are blinded to the truth. Because just like these religious leaders, they rather embrace nonsense. They can't know anything at all. Than submit to God. Romans 1.21 says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We don't know. We don't know. But I want to make this very clear. Every time we as Christians sin, we are doing the same thing. The same exact thing. We are suppressing the truth. That is apparent to us. Every time we sin, we are exchanging the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creepy things. We're exchanging our relationship with the glory of God for popularity, for man's opinion, for money, for our own pride. So before we get too judgmental of the religious leaders, it's so easy. Everyone picks on the Pharisees, right? Before we get too judgmental on the religious leaders, 
and, and or our culture, we should examine our own hearts. See if there's any unconfessed sins. And I say this. I expect non-believers to suppress the truth. Right? The Bible tells us that's what they do. Right? But as Christians, when we suppress the truth, that makes no sense. It makes no sense. We are not blind. We have been given sight. Thankfully, God is a God of grace. He's a, I'm talking to myself here. Every time I sin, I'm like, gosh, why? And then I am so thankful that God is a God of grace. He's a God that's willing to forgive. Faithful and just to forgive you. First John tells us. So this is a perfect time to get the men to, to stand up and come into the back and get ready for uh, the Lord's Supper. I just wanted to say as the offering plate's going around, this is a time of celebration for those sins that we have confessed. They are forgiven. Let's rejoice in that. Um, for you, if you do not know the Lord, you do not know the Lord, please don't leave this place without talking to someone. I'd love to talk with you. Come, come up and uh, talk to me. What, what does it mean that we're doing um, the Lord's Supper, what's the bread, what's the blood, and I'd love to explain that to you. So don't leave this place without asking what it means to be saved, what it means to have a relationship with the Lord, what we're doing. Uh, this, this has no special uh, spiritual power. This is remembering something that Christ did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you and rejoice, Lord, as we go through this passage and we see ourselves, Lord, suppressing the truth in our lives, Lord, as we sin daily, God. God, we are thankful that you are a gracious, loving, just to forgive God, Lord. You don't just overlook our sins, Lord. You don't make small of sin, Lord, but you found a way to pay for that sins. Your son died on the cross for us, Lord. So we rejoice. We thank you. I pray as we go have lunch and fellowship and hang out, Lord, that we are in remembrance of what you have done for us and the freedom and grace that we have through you, Lord. In your son's name, amen.